Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, from history to business, and of course, stories of courage and love, of beauty, and of loss and sacrifice. And we love letters and poems on our show. Whenever we find a good piece of writing, we love for the author to read it for us. Sometimes the author has passed, and we reenact those poems or letters. Today, we have a poem by Anne Eliza Bleeker. Anne was born in October 1752 in Albany, New York, the last of six children. They were of the Dutch elite, and her life was filled with security and happiness. As a young child, Anne was often asked to recite her poems. They were humorous, satirical, and sentimental. Anne married her husband, John, in 1769. He was a lawyer, but soon gave up his work and took up agriculture. They moved to a more rural setting, 18 miles north of Albany. They were extremely wealthy. This was evident through their possessions and their surroundings. Anne considered her home a retreat, and most of her very best poetry was written during the first five years after that move. During this time, she had her two daughters, Margareta and Abella. Tragedy struck in 1777 when the Revolutionary War broke out. British troops under the command of General John Burgoyne invaded from Canada. John joined the New York militia while Anne, their daughters, mother and sister, fled back to Albany. After losing all of their wealth and comfort, she then lost one of her greatest treasures. Her young daughter, Abella, died of dysentery shortly before they reached Albany. In her mourning, she wrote this poem, written in retreat from Burgoyne. Was it for this with thee a pleasing load? I sadly wandered through the hostile wood. When I thought fortune's spite could do no more, To see thee perish on a foreign shore? Oh, my loved babe, my treasures left behind, Ne'er sunk a cloud of grief upon my mind. Rich in my children, on my arms I bore, My living treasures from the scalper's power. When I sat down to rest beneath some shade, On the soft grass, how innocent she played, While her sweet sister from the fragrant wild Collects the flowers to please my precious child. Unconscious of her danger, laughing roves, nor dreads the painted savage in the groves. Soon as the spires of Albany appeared, with fallacies my rising grief I cheered. Resigned I bear, said I, heaven's just reproof. Content to dwell beneath a stranger's roof, content my babe should eat dependent bread or by the labor of my hands be fed. What though my houses, lands, and goods are gone? My babes remain. These I can call my own. But soon, my love Debella hung her head. From her soft cheek the bright carnation fled. Her smooth, transparent skin too plainly showed how fierce through every vein the fever glowed. In bitter anguish o'er her limbs I hung. I wept and sighed, but sorrow chained my tongue. At length her languid eyes closed from the day. The idol of my soul was torn away. 
her spirit fled and left me ghastly clay. Then, then my soul rejected all relief. Comfort I wish not for, I loved my grief. Hear my Abella, cried I, hear me mourn for one short moment, O oh, my child, return. Let my complaint detain thee from the skies, though troops of angels urge thee on to rise. All night I mourned, and when the rising day gilt her sad chest with its benignest ray, my friends press round me with officious care, bid me suppress my sighs, nor drop a tear. Of resignation talked, passion subdued, of soul serene and Christian fortitude. Bade me be calm, nor murmur at my loss, but unrepining bear each heavy cross. Go, I cried, raging stoic bosoms, go, whose hearts vibrate not to the sound of woe. Go from the sweet society of men, seek some unfeeling tiger's savage den. There, calm alone of resignation, preach. My Christ's example, better precepts teach. Where the cold limbs of gentle Lazarus lay, I find him weeping o'er the humid clay. His spirit groaned while the beholder said, with gushing eyes, See how he loved the dead? And when his thoughts on great Jerusalem turned, Oh, how pathetic o'er her fall he mourned. In sad Gethsemane's nocturnal shade, the anguish of my weeping Lord surveyed. Yes, tis my boast to harbor in my breast the sensibilities by God expressed. Nor shall the mollifying hand of time, which wipes off common sorrows, cancel mine. And just a beautiful rendering by faith and Anne Eliza Bleeker's poem, A Reflection and Meditation, The Grief Evident, But Looking Up, Trying to Make Sense of the Loss, and Putting It All into Beautiful Words. If you've got a story, a poem, a piece of art, a memory, send it to us. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org, OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll produce the piece and put it up. And Eliza Bleeker's story, her family's story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and our next story is about an American whose name we've all heard. In high school and in college, his novels are assigned reading. No doubt you've sipped the coffee named after one of his characters. Herman Melville's life reads just like his books, full of adventure, color, and penetrating genius. William Faulkner confessed he wished he'd written Melville's Moby Dick himself, and D.H. Lawrence called it one of the strangest and most wonderful books in the world. But the high esteem he commands today is far from the reality he experienced during his lifetime. Today, we're going to go on an adventure with the man who is now considered America's Shakespeare. Take it away. On June 23rd, 1842, an American whaling ship dropped anchor 2,300 miles southeast of Hawaii in the Marquesas Islands in French Polynesia. Two of its young sailors, sick of conditions on board, quietly jumped ship and melted into the forest. Without maps or compass, Herman Melville and his friend Toby Green fought their way through the jungle, uncertain of their destination. Here's Melville from his first book, Taipee. On we toiled, the perspiration starting from our bodies in floods, our limbs torn and lacerated with the splintered fragments of the broken canes, until we had proceeded perhaps as far as the middle of the break. I sunk down for a moment with a sort of dogged apathy, from which I was aroused by Toby, who had devised a plan to free us from the net in which we had become entangled. Melville and Toby had in fact fallen into the hands of the Taipei natives. The ferocious Taipees were well known for two things. Here's anthropologist Banked Danielson. These people had a great predilection for human flesh. Once they had killed an enemy in a battle, they took him to the feast place, to the Tohuwa, as it's called, and they actually put the body into an earth oven. They never cooked them. I mean, you always see in uh, humoristic uh, pictures missionaries being cooked and boiled in big pots. But uh, the Polynesians had no pots at all. So they had invented a very special method of preparing their food by baking it in an earth oven. It's a delicious way of doing it. Food prepared in an earth oven is much better than, shall we say, you know, fried, you know, food or cooked or boiled food. The second thing the Taipei were known for is told by Melville scholar Viola Sachs and psychologist Henry Murray. We have descriptions of people who went to the, the Marquesan Islands, of, of, for instance, the missionaries, that uh, what they considered the incredible sexual orgies, right? The dances are uh, uh, showing your sexual organs, right? The parents who knew the islands and so forth uh, wouldn't let their, their sons go down there between the ages of 17 and 22 or something. They'd have to go to school up here because if they went there, they'd never be satisfied with, with an American girl. The Taipees placed the young Americans under house arrest. But not long after, Toby escaped alone while Melville found his freedom four months later. Melville's experiences in the Marquesas marked him for the rest of his life as a man who had lived among the cannibals. They also provided material for his first book, Taipei, published in 1846. Melville was rescued by an Australian whaling ship in desperate need of men, and he signed on as a seaman. 
Here's literary critic Alfred Kazin and Melville scholar Howard Vincent. He had very little formal schooling. None of the great American writers did, except uh, those who went to Harvard, like Emerson and Thoreau. He either went to Harvard or he went to the whaling fleet. He says, a whaleship was my Yale College and my Harvard. Now that is a great tribute to experience. The necessity of tough, rough, hard experience. Soon after landing in Hawaii, he earned his keep working odd jobs as a dry goods salesman and a pin setter at a bowling alley. In August 1842, in hopes of working his way home, Melville enlisted in the U.S. Navy as an ordinary seaman. These 14 months on board would become the basis for his fifth book, White Jacket, published in 1850. Melville was 25 and had been gone from home for almost four years. He returned to New York and to his distinguished family. As one historian put it, young Herman's world was one of servants and dancing schools. His grandfathers had been heroes in the Revolutionary War, one a participant in the Boston Tea Party. Born on August 1st, 1819 in New York City, he was the third born of eight siblings. Herman's father put very little stock in his young son, writing this when his boy was just seven years old. He is very backward in speech and somewhat slow in comprehension, but you will find him as far as he understands men and things, both solid and profound, of docile and amiable disposition. Herman's father died when he was 12. Herman quit school, but his education never ceased. He devoured every book he could get his hands on. He took a job in his uncle's bank and his brother's store before he finally went to sea as an apprentice sailor. This was the beginning of many voyages that would lead to the adventures that would mark his literary masterpieces. Nobody had the experiences that Melville had as a young sailor, and no one made so much of these experiences as a writer and as a thinker. By the age of 25, Herman Melville had experienced more of the world than most men would in a lifetime. It was 1844, and Melville returned home with sailors' wages and exotic tales of life in the South Seas. Encouraged by his family and friends, he began to put his adventures to paper. His first book, based on his four months as captive among the cannibals in the Marquesas, was loved by Harper Brothers of New York, but they finally rejected it, saying it was too exciting and impossible to be true, and therefore without real value. Shortly after, a British and then another New York publisher bought the rights to Taipei, a peep at Polynesian life. Here's literary critic A. Robert Lee. It was greeted, particularly in England and France, as one of the great ingenuous American works. Here at last was the young American Adam casting free of home, mother, father, the great American family, apple pie, and he'd gone off into that terrible place, the whaling fisheries. Taipei was a great success. Reviewers, however, had trouble believing Melville's tale of life among the sensual cannibals until, quite by surprise, his long-lost mate, Toby, turned up in Buffalo, New York and confirmed the story. And there was another of these American wanderers, 
just as Twain would take that arterial Mississippi River and go down it, wandering, just as Poe would wander inside the chambers of his mind, just as Whitman would talk of the open road, notion that Americans are on the move, the westering, futuristic impulse. Tremendous stuff to those of my ancestors who read it in Victorian England, sitting at home reading Trollope, Browning, Tennyson, listening to the family performances, Sunday church. Melville wrote a continuation of his adventures in the South Seas with Omo. But this second book would unfortunately be the high watermark of Melville's popularity during his lifetime. Here's Paul Metcalf, Herman Melville's great-grandson. Each book represents a different uh, aspect of his intelligence, of his emotion, of his energy, of his concerns. When you read, read the books chronologically, it's like reading his autobiography. Uncharacteristic of the times, Melville left moral judgments to the reader. Social reformer Horace Greeley wrote in a review, Taipei and Omo are almost unmistakably defective, if not positively diseased in moral tone, and will fairly be condemned as dangerous reading for those of immature intellects and unsettled principles. In August 1847, Melville married Elizabeth Shaw and moved to New York City. He followed Taipei and Omo with more Life at Sea tales, Marty, Redburn, and White Jacket. Then, on August 5th, Herman Melville met fellow American novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne. This encounter would affect Melville profoundly, and in turn, the book that he was struggling to write, first named The Whale, and later known as Moby Dick. And when we come back, more on the life of Herman Melville, America's Shakespeare, his story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our story about a storyteller and his struggle with the next novel that would change everything. Back to Greg Hengler and the story of Herman Melville. Melville saw in Hawthorne the writer he aspired to be and eventually dedicated the finished novel to his friend. Here's Hawthorne biographer James Mello. Somebody like Hawthorne could be an encouragement just by the fact that he had managed to do this great book, The Scarlet Letter, and working on themes about the dark side of human nature. And I think that encouraged Melville to, to sort of rethink the book about the whale that he had already started doing and decide that he could make something greater out of it. Here's Melville historian Jay Leda. He wanted to write like Hawthorne. 
And so some of that admiration is really the admiration of, of a disciple, I think. Whereas Hawthorne took the general and made them particular, Melville tended to take real events and made them symbolic and suggestive. Here's poet and novelist Robert Warren. He wrote Hawthorne saying, you dare to say the unsayable. You recognize the evil in the universe. And he totally unlike, say, Emerson, who called all evil, all sin, merely the mumps and measles of the universe to be soon outgrown. That was not Melville. It'll never be outgrown. It's an unending battle against the white whale. In the fall of 1850, with an advance from his publishers, Melville bought a 160-acre farm in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. He named it Arrowhead. It's here where he would finish what would become the metaphysical classic, Moby Dick. Here again is A. Robert Lee. Shakespeare, whose language, whose voices, whose ventriloquism were everything to Melville. At once admiring Shakespeare, and at the same time wanting to say, we must have Shakespeare's here. Why no American Shakespeare's? In August 1851, Herman Melville finished Moby Dick. He was 31 years old and had written an American book worthy of Shakespeare. A vast, funny, and terrifying story of good and evil, told through the adventures of one man's mad pursuit of a great white whale. The book is a simultaneous combination of an adventure story, a detailed account of the whaling industry, a cautionary tale, and a metaphor whose meaning scholars still argue over today. Here's how Moby Dick begins. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. There is nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, sometime or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings toward the ocean with me. The speed of his mind, the speed of his ability to go from one imaginative fancy to another, and above all, the way in which he covers the whole world, the whole cosmic world. After Moby Dick, which is now firmly established a classic, is the most cosmic book in American literature. And everybody's in it, and every kind of person's in it. He peaked at 32. Uh, he did other things, interesting, and just first rate, but they were different. There's nothing to compare with Moby Dick. But to, to do that and to speak in such profundity and to organize that, it's more than the Ninth Symphony. It, it, 
It's a juggling act of cerebration and of affect. That is, there is not only left and right hemisphere, but there's a lot of pituitary in there, too. There's a lot of passion in that book. Moby Dick has what all the, what all the uh, classic works of literature have, what we like to call a mythical situation, a situation that can appeal to anyone's imagination. Seeking a great beast, you see. It's the, it's the myth of the hunt. It's the myth of the big one that got away. It's like Faulkner's bear. Uh, and uh, anybody can understand this. Indeed, he develops the, uh, the sense of this uh, great white whale to the point that the whale may very well be the protagonist of the story. You can argue that he is the hero. But the notion that this is a chase story is simplistic to say the least. Underneath the visual subplot is the more real yet unseen plot. Dr. Dwight Lindley is a professor of English at Hillsdale College. He shares one example of how Melville uses this approach in his storytelling. Captain Ahab, who is this obsessive personality with some real psychological and moral problems. You know, he wants to be in charge in a way that's just humanly impossible for him to be in charge. And he shows that in order to pursue this vendetta, this impossible task, he has to persuade the men around him to follow him. And so he becomes a kind of rhetorical master. He tells these dramatic, lurid tales of his encounter with Moby Dick and brings them all on board to pursue the blood of this white whale and promises them gold. And they all pile in because he has such a fantastic way of speaking about it. He's very persuasive and dynamic. But then they end up going to their deaths. <laughs> and so one of the things that Melville is thinking about in the story is how tyranny actually works. You know, tyranny is this form of government where a single person dominates over the multitude in the power of his speech and his promises and his vision, but who doesn't actually have the good of the people in mind. And so one of the things that he's thinking about the whole time is how is it that people actually end up getting sucked into a path that's really bad for them? Humans all want a dramatic purpose in their lives. And, you know, we all want a really powerful reason for living. And so if we're not very excited about the prospects we have right now, uh, and we don't have a really transcendent, awesome reason to be alive, we're going to be easily talked into following somebody who does, if that person has the right kind of persuasive powers. This tale of Captain Ahab and his crew presented the realm of American myth. In fact, the great white whale wreaking its vengeance on its monomaniacal peg-leg tormentor is one of the most widely recognized images in our nation's literature. We encounter it in comic books, on coffee cups, and in numerous other artifacts of our popular culture. We have absorbed it, ingested it, and appropriated it as a permanent fixture of the American psyche. And when we come back, our final installment on this story about a storyteller, perhaps America's finest storyteller, America's Shakespeare, Herman Melville's story, here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, where we celebrate artists' life, from music to playwrights 
to country musicians, and of course, novelists. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now for the final segment in this story about one of America's greatest storytellers, if not the greatest, Herman Melville. Let's take it back to Greg. Here's the great British actor Patrick Stewart reciting Moby Dick in Star Trek First Contact. He piled upon the whale's white helm, the sum of all the rage and hate felt by his old race. If his chest had been a cannon, he would have shot his heart upon it. Scully from the X-Files was such a fan of the book, she called her dad Ahab, and she was Starbuck. Hello, Starbuck. It's Ahab. According to Howard Schultz's book, Pour Your Heart Out, how Starbucks built a company one cup at a time, Starbucks co-founder Gordon Bowker suggested... They named their business after the whaling ship in Moby Dick to his then-creative partner, Terry Heckler, who responded, Nobody's going to want to drink a cup of Pequod. They decided Captain Ahab's first mate, Starbuck, would be the name of the then-unknown brand. Here again is A. Robert Lee reading and then unpacking Melville's symbolism in Moby Dick. I always go to sea as a sailor, because of the wholesome exercise and pure air of the forecastle deck. You couldn't ask anything better than that. That is the Boy Scout, that is Ishmael, going for that invigorating moment, the sea. We read on, for as in this world, headwinds are more prevalent than winds from astern. That is, if you never violate the Pythagorean maxim, so for the most part, the Commodore on the quarter deck gets his atmosphere second-hand from the sailors on the forecastle. He thinks he breathes it first, but not so. Now that, of course, is Melville tricking the reader. What on earth is the Pythagorean maxim? What on earth is this buried reference to these various headwinds? Well, not to put too fine an edge to it, it is simply that the Pythagorean maxim says, don't eat beans, it gives you wind. If you have wind, you fart. This is a reference inside this most classic of whaling books to a fart. Sailors fart and therefore, surprisingly, the Commodore gets his wind, if you'll forgive me, from the astern. In October 1851, Melville's second son was born to be followed by two daughters. Moby Dick's sales were poor and the public's indifference toward the book caused Melville more problems than a bruised ego. He had bet too much on the book's prospective success. 
He had taken out a second mortgage on Arrowhead and was now having trouble making the payments. He was also overdrawn on the account with his publishers. Melville again needed a book that would sell. Pierre was written to appeal to his popular audience, but he had miscalculated again. Critics condemned the book, and readers didn't buy it. And the literary community even began to question his sanity. Melville's treatment of sexual themes of incest and illegitimacy was too much for his Victorian audience. Here again is Jay Lita. The literary establishment almost tabooed him from their company. By company, I mean their companionship. It was a very difficult last half of a life, but it was not a silenced one. Melville lectured three years before quitting the circuit. In 1863, he was forced to sell Arrowhead and move back to New York City and turned his attention to poetry. Melville was deeply affected by the Civil War. He traveled to the battlefront and observed the war firsthand. From newspaper accounts and personal observations, he would produce battle pieces in 1866, a collection of Civil War poems. Here again is Robert Warren sitting on the battlefield at Shiloh in southwestern Tennessee. Nobody wanted to read Melville. Melville was a dead man and felt like a dead man. And suddenly the war came, and the war woke him up. His own grief, his own sense of defeat, was now merged with a much broader one, a wider one, a national tragedy. His personal tragedy was absorbed into that. And somehow you can't help feeling that that fact is what drove him to the poems on the Civil War. One cannot be uh, profound about life. I don't think it's possible without touching on the topic of death. Melville did more than touch on the topic. He explicated it. He wrestled with it. He chewed on it. He thought about it. He spoke to it. He was not obsessed with the topic, but it's in every one of his books. In December 1866, at the age of 47, Herman Melville took what amounted to be his first regularly paying job of his adult life. His salary? A mere $4 a day. It was a desk job working as a customs inspector, number 75, at the Port of New York. After 19 years of service, a family inheritance allowed Melville to retire from the customs house. He was 66. Once again, he was free to devote full time to his writing. There was still some interest in him in England, but at home, he was almost completely forgotten. And when Melville died at 72 of a heart attack on September 28, 1891, more people knew him as a retired customs inspector than as a great writer. Though he's now recognized as a master of fiction, readers then just found him weird. Melville was truly a man ahead of his time. It wasn't until the 1920s when the Melville revival began that he was finally recognized as one of the greatest American writers. So it should be no surprise that the blank scroll on his gravestone at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx still reminds us how little understood and appreciated this man was in his day. He said when the coffin goes down, the, the fame goes up. 
He died uh, having all kinds of evidence that the fame was going to come. One proof of how American he is is how people discover him all over the world. Melville is Apollonian in his thoughts. He is clean and clear. He is Bach-like. But then he's Rococo and ornate and Melvillian in the expression of those pristine thoughts. I like that combination. It's much better than the other way around, a fuzzy thought said simply. Melville's metaphors slide into their meanings and hit you and tap. They don't hit you, they tap you and move away. And you have to say, wait a minute, he meant this and that. And that's the way with any great poet. Love and hate, light and dark, good and bad, morality and license. All these things run all through his book. We like people, don't we, who will take on the large questions. We've lost that Victorian confidence. He knew what it was to go up the mast, down into the bowels of the ship. He'd been the length of the ship, he'd been the breadth of the ship. The ship, if you will, as uh, some operative metaphor for how we live, the world, the community we find ourselves in. The New York Times wrote a week after Herman Melville's death, there has died and been buried in this city a man who is so little known, even by name, to the generation now in the vigor of life that only one newspaper contained an obituary account of him, and this was but three or four lines. He has died an absolutely forgotten man. Thirty years after his death, a manuscript was discovered hidden in an old tin cake box owned by Herman's granddaughter. It's the story of a handsome young sailor that's falsely accused of fomenting mutiny. He is tried and convicted for this naval crime and is hung from the yardarm. The book, Billy Budd, it is now considered one of his greatest works. Billy Budd ends with these words. I remember Taft the Welshman when he sank, and his cheek, it was like the budding pink. But me, they'll lash me in hammock, drop me deep. Fathoms down, fathoms down, how I'll dream, fast asleep. I feel it stealing now. Sentry, are you there? Just ease these darbies at the wrist and roll me over fair. I am sleepy, and the oozy weeds about me twist. Moby Dick is now one of the most famous books in the English language. For all the mockery that he endured during his life, it looks like Herman Melville got the last laugh. He may have seen it coming. For as Ishmael says, there are times when a man takes his whole universe for a vast practical joke. Though the wit thereof he but dimly discerns, and more than suspects, that the joke is at nobody's expense but his own. This is Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And I was an English lit major and devoured Melville, but did not know some of these finer points, especially the amount of time he spent at sea. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Herman Melville's story... America Shakespeare. And to hear this and all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org.
Hours on artists, actors, musicians, directors, and of course, writers, writers. This is Our American Stories, and we love telling stories from American history on this show because they give us a sense of how we got to where we are today. Many of these stories are fun, but many are tough, too. And today's story is about one family torn apart by the very revolution that gave us our independence. And you probably recognize his name. On this day in history in 1776, the St. James Chronicle of London had an announcement about Benjamin Franklin. It turns out he'd been widely admired on both sides of the Atlantic, and he had taken the side of the American Revolution. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Now, the twist in this story is that Benjamin Franklin's son, William, had been granted a royal governorship in 1762, and the younger Franklin did not join the revolution. In fact, he remained a strong loyalist. To hear more of this fascinating story, we're joined by author Daniel Mark Epstein, who wrote The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. Daniel, tell us what drew you to this story and inspired this book. Well, I was always interested in Benjamin Franklin from the time I was a kid, you know, as being one of the most versatile Americans, a man who was a great inventor, uh, and probably the, the, the first great scientist in terms of uh, electricity. And, of course, everybody knows the story about Ben flying the kite. And... I remember seeing the woodcut of, uh, of Benjamin Franklin flying the kite with his little boy, and I wondered what would it be like to have Benjamin Franklin as a father. I mean, a man who was not only a great inventor, but um, created the militia in Pennsylvania in order to defend the frontier against the Indians, and then you know created the first postal system in Pennsylvania and the University of Pennsylvania. And then, of course, became uh, one of the greatest American patriots during the Revolution. What would it be like to be that man's son? Uh, and then, of course, I found out that um, Benjamin Franklin's only son was um, illegitimate, a bastard. But that uh, he was raised just as if he had been a legitimate son. And the two of them were partners in politics and in military affairs and uh, later in diplomacy. Um, so it was an extraordinary father-son relationship, and the fact that they went different ways during the Revolution, and that William Franklin, 
um, became the governor, the royal governor of New Jersey, while his father, of course, was the greatest patriot, uh, drove them apart. And I thought, what a tragedy and what a great story. So I actually wrote a poem about this in the 1990s. And do you have that poem? Do I have it with me right now? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's, it was published long ago. And as often happens, because I, I was a, a poet before I became a biographer, several of my uh, poems have been transformed into these larger and more complete biographies. And well, a good case of that. And that's how it really stuck with you. I mean, it went from poetry to, to, uh, to nonfiction. And in the end, poetry is, is storytelling as well. And, uh, and that's what you're doing here. Talk to the, the listeners, because a lot of people don't know this about American history. This was no duck walk for ordinary Americans. It split families. It split fathers and sons. Some people were with the revolutionaries and the, and the patriots. Some were with the, with, the, with the crown. And some were just hiding under the table, hoping it would pass. How did this basically split up, particularly in the area where Franklin lived in Pennsylvania, numbers changed, but at the beginning, uh, the majority of the people were against the revolution, and in fact, uh, Benjamin Franklin and his son, in their works of diplomacy um, in England, tried to prevent the revolution. It was only after the British beca- uh, government became more and more oppressive, and they sent troops to Boston, um, that Benjamin Franklin finally became a patriot fairly late in the game, around 1775. Uh, so they both resisted the revolution. As far as the numbers are concerned, by 1776, um, I would say a third of the American people were for the revolution, a third were against it, and the other third were just trying to blow with the wind and try to, you know, try to um, try to keep out of trouble. And talk about now, uh, just briefly, we'll we'll open up the open up the lid on the next segment about this father son conflict, but. Were there, were there battles out in the streets? Was this quiet? Was this simmering? What was the, what was the climate like for folks day to day? Obviously, Franklin had, a, had something to do with newspapers as well. Talk about what it felt like then, because today all we hear about is, my goodness, the climate today in America, it's just so hard. But my goodness, we have seen much tougher times in this country. Well, um, just as an example, um, during the, the passing of the Stamp Act, uh, there were riots in the streets in, uh, in Boston and Philadelphia. And by 1775, um, there was really open warfare in the streets of many cities um, over, the, um, over the tax, uh, the ver- various tax collectors, people protecting them, people attacking them. And uh, by 1776, there were these provincial uh, committees of safety who would um, actually hold individuals uh, accountable if they said anything that, uh, that seemed to be threatening to the um, movement for independence. And this was the point where Governor Franklin, you know, as the last royal governor of New Jersey, was defending, uh, defending the loyalists, the people who protected the crown. So it really was, uh, it was a revolution in, the st- I mean, it was a uh, civil war, in the streets of the major cities uh, all over all over America. And when people start to talk about this great, great division here in the country right now and how hard it is and how difficult it is, always remember that America's first civil war, well, it happened during the American Revolution. The Civil War was just a continuation of what happened back in the 18th century. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, and again, all of our This Day in Histories 
are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And go to hillsdale.edu, and particularly their Constitution 101 course, which sets up so much of what happened between the birth of this country, the Declaration, and the Constitution itself. More with the story of the war in Ben Franklin's house. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we continue with our conversation with Daniel Epstein. And on this day in history in 1776, the St. James Chronicle of London had a big announcement for the world, most particularly for England and for America. Ben Franklin had chosen sides, and it was with America. And Daniel, we were just talking about what a remarkable person Benjamin Franklin was, but now tell us a little bit about his son, How did he go from being an illegitimate one, which was a big disadvantage back then, to becoming the royal governor of New Jersey? Well, he was, um, William Franklin was an extraordinary young man in his own right. Uh, People talk about Ben Franklin as being precocious, as a businessman and a printer and a politician. Uh, But his son also was extraordinary. Um, His son wanted a military career. And so he went off and, and joined, uh, joined the king's army at age 15. And by the time he was 18 years old, he was a captain, which was the highest rank you could attain in America without um, paying for it. And um, at that point, he retired from the army, and uh, his father got him a really good tutor, and he started studying law. And then he worked for his father um, in the um, legislature, in the Assembly of Pennsylvania, so he got this political career. And then when his father got the job to go off to England as the agent for the Assembly of Pennsylvania, representing the, the Assembly against the proprietors who refused to be taxed, his son went with him. And in England, his son rose very quickly. Uh, he went to the bar uh, and got his law, his law degree in his mid-20s. And shortly after that, uh, was appointed to be the governor of New Jersey. So at that point in his life, he was in his late 20s. Uh, his father was uh, 50, in his mid-50s. He was even more powerful in the, uh, in the government than his father was. So he had an extraordinary career. And so let's get down to this conflict. I mean, by the time we get to the Stamp Act, as we had indicated before, um, the the country was in pretty much open rebellion and a civil war was brewing. And William took a stand and Ben took a stand. And talk about uh, their final meeting in particular was remarkable. But before we get to that, build up to that if we can. Set up that, I, I think, almost just tragic scene between a father and son. Well, it's really extraordinary the extent to which the two men were living in different worlds, because um, by 1775, two years before the actual uh, Declaration of Independence, 
uh, William had been living in America. He was the governor of New Jersey, and he'd been the governor of New Jersey for more than a decade uh, in trying to represent the king's interests in America and trying to prevent this revolution, which he knew would be a disaster. And a lot of people, even Benjamin Franklin up until 1775, felt it would be a big mistake for America to separate from the mother country. Meanwhile, his father is in England, and his father is still working on behalf of the colonies, representing the colonies' interests in, uh, in England uh, against Parliament. And he's seeing more and more corruption in, uh, in England, and uh, in the meantime, the, 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 the English government is sending troops to Boston and the rest of America in order to enforce these uh, taxation laws and he's growing more and more bitter against the uh, the English government, so that the two of them were living in different worlds. And when it finally came down to the uh, 1776 and the Declaration of Independence, uh, William was thoroughly on the side of the king and the crown, and his father at that point was a confirmed American patriot and revolutionary. So they just went different ways. Even before that, I think there was a certain amount of jealousy between father and son, as sometimes happens, tragically. Um, And um, his dad, I think, was a a little bit jealous of William. So let's talk next about this father and son. They're at loggerheads. What happens to William next as he takes his stand? The country is moving to war. It's clearly ready for war. William is not. Well, first of all, his father came home in time to try to talk his son over to the the side that he believed would be safest, uh, that is, the side of the revolutionaries. And the two had some very, very stormy confrontations um, in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey, uh, where where, uh, his father visited him, and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries, because that was his side and the family's side, and William refused. And William uh, ended up being the last, um, the last royal governor to do the king's business in America, uh, stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion, and had to be taken away bodily, and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield, Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement uh, with bread and water for 18 months. Uh, and suffered terribly during that time. Um, he finally was released in a prisoner's exchange, but his father had very little to do with that, and eventually went back to England. And this had to really hurt Ben Franklin. I mean, A, it's his son, and no matter what kind of jealousies might have existed, to watch this befall, this kind of plight befall your son, had to be difficult. Moreover, he's a very public figure, and it wasn't as if his son was some wallflower. He was a governor who was now in jail. How did he handle that? Well, Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life, and you have to believe that. And there was a lot of public criticism of him for not, uh, for not helping his son out. But remember, he was the minister plenipotentiary to France and could not be seen as being in collusion with, uh, you know, with a Tory. And so he was in a horrible, it's really a tragic situation, uh, which really is kind of like the, um, uh, the Revolutionary War in microcosm. And do you think he really understood his son's hardship? I don't. No, I don't really think. I think the, the part of the tragedy of the book and what I finally end up saying in the end is that these were two men who could never reconcile 
although the son wanted to, William wanted to more than his father did, they could never reconcile because they they just did not understand each other. And these are two very intelligent men. So it shows you just how extreme uh, this break between father and son can be when it happens. Yep, and, and in the end, the, the father didn't understand the son, but the son didn't understand the dad either. I don't think so. I don't... Part of the, what, what we haven't spoken about is that at the end of the war, William became a counter-revolutionary, a violent counter-revolutionary, and uh, this his father could not, could not ever forgive. And you were listening to Daniel Mark Epstein. The book is The War in Ben Franklin's House. I urge you to pick it up. Go to Amazon.com. That's The War in Ben Franklin's House. And again, it was our first civil war, and we're doing this story today and talking to Daniel because on this day in history in 1776, England and America learned that Ben Franklin had chosen sides. Both countries wanted Ben and his support. And my goodness, what a tug of war. He was very close to so many people, had spent so much time in London. But in the end, he announced to the world that he had chosen to side with his family and friends in America. And... You had heard towards the end there that the father and son had suffered irreconcilable differences, particularly when the son became a counter-revolutionary after the war and after he got out of prison. Years later, the son tried to reach out to the dad. He was exiled to England, as so many loyalists did. They just couldn't live in the United States. It just wasn't possible. And while in England, he started to write to his dad, and here was the final response from his father to his son. Dear son, I am glad to find that you desire to revive the affectionate intercourse that formerly existed between us. It will be very agreeable to me. Indeed, nothing has ever hurt me so much and affected me with such keen sensations as to find myself deserted in my old age by my only son, and not only deserted, but to find him taking up arms against me in a cause wherein my good fame, fortune, and life were all at stake. The two, obviously from that letter, would never reconcile and would never meet again. This is Lee Habib, the story of Ben Franklin choosing sides, the war in Ben Franklin's house, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now we take a look back to the American Revolution and to an author whose anonymous publication became the voice of the rebellion. The author, Thomas Paine. The publication, Common Sense. Take it away, Jesse. Thomas Paine wrote the book on American independence, helping to set the stage for the American Revolution. As one of our founding fathers, this English-born political activist, philosopher, and badass revolutionary was known as a corset maker by trade, a journalist by profession, and propagandist by inclination. Payne migrated to the British American colonies in 1774 with the help of Benjamin Franklin. Virtually every rebel read or listened to a reading of his pamphlet called Common Sense, which argued for independence from British rule. Here's Thomas Paine with the introduction to common sense as anonymous. The cause of America is in a great measure the cause of all mankind. Many circumstances hath and will arise which are not local but universal, and through which the principles of all lovers of mankind are affected, and in the event of which their affections are interested. The laying a country desolate with fire and sword, declaring war against the natural rights of all mankind, and extirpating the defenders thereof from the face of the earth, is the concern of every man to whom nature hath given the power of feeling, of which class, regardless of party censure, is the author. Who the author of this production is, is wholly unnecessary to the public as the object for attention is the doctrine itself, not the man. Yet it may not be unnecessary to say that he is unconnected with any party, and under no sort of influence, public or private, but the influence of reason and principle. Throughout the 1760s and 70s, people were getting tired of British taxation and rule. Protests were falling on deaf ears, which led to the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, and a boycott on British goods. Yet after all that drama, a lot of colonialists still had allegiances and nostalgic warm fuzzy feelings for the motherland. That became more of an unpopular position when British Parliament banned all trade with the colonies in December of 1775. But still, loyalists remained, and Thomas Paine was calling them out. The prejudice of Englishmen in favor of their own government of king, lords, and commons arises as much or more from national pride than reason. Individuals are undoubtedly safer in England than in some other countries, but the will of the king is as much the law of the land in Britain as in France, with this difference, that instead of proceeding directly from his mouth, it is handed to the people under the more formidable shape of an act of parliament. For the fate of Charles I hath only made kings more subtle not more just. Wherefore, laying aside all national pride and prejudice in favor of modes and forms, the plain truth is that it is wholly owing to the constitution of the people and not to the constitution of the government that the crown is not as oppressive in England as in Turkey. An inquiry into the constitutional errors in the English form of government is at this time highly necessary. For as we are never in proper condition of doing justice to others while we continue under the influence of some leading partiality, so neither are we capable of doing it to ourselves while we remain fettered by an obstinate prejudice. 
and as a man who is attached to a prostitute is unfitted to choose or judge a wife, so any prepossession in favor of a rotten constitution of government will disable us from discerning a good one. Thomas Paine had sold nearly 120,000 copies of Common Sense from the time it was published in January to four months later in April of 1776. The argument for independence had reached a tipping point. Thomas Paine would provide the extra push. But what exactly was the main argument of this publication? Professor of History and American Studies at Yale, Joanne Freeman, has the answer. The main argument of the pamphlet did three things. So number one, it, it basically refuted the prevailing ideas against independence. It went one step further and demonstrated the necessity of independence and how possible it was. And it demonstrated the stupidity and utter uselessness, not only of the English monarchy, but just of monarchies generally. In fact, Thomas Paine hated monarchies so much that we're still talking about his rants and raves against them to this day. In the early ages of the world, according to the scripture chronology, there were no kings, the consequence of which was there were no wars. It is the pride of kings which throw mankind into confusion. Holland, without a king, hath enjoyed more peace for this last century than any of the monarchical governments in Europe. Antiquity favors the same remark. For the quiet and rural lives of the first patriarchs have a happy something in them which vanishes away when we come to the history of Jewish royalty. Government by kings was first introduced into the world by the heathens, from whom the children of Israel copied the custom. It was the most prosperous invention the devil ever set on foot for the promotion of idolatry. The heathens paid divine honors to their deceased kings and the Christian world hath improved on the plan by doing the same to their living ones. How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to the worm, who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. Back in the day, in 1776, those were fighting words. Here again is Yale professor Joanne Freeman with some context on what Thomas Paine's common sense accomplished at the time. First, the crown was the last remaining emotional and political link that was really tying the colonies to the mother country. By this point, the colonists had lost faith in Parliament, so Paine certainly knew that if he could strike at this last linchpin of colonial sentiment, he could advance the cause of independence. Second, if Paine could destroy the legitimacy, not only of King George, but also of the idea of monarchy overall, then the English Constitution's legitimacy would suffer as well, once again, hopefully, opening the way for independence. And then third, I think equally important, rhetorically, Paine had a really good writer's sense of pacing, and he knew that if he opened this pamphlet with this really dramatic challenge to all of the prevailing assumptions about government, and if he turned all of these assumptions on their head, he would pull readers in to his pamphlet and into his argument immediately and hold them there for the center of his argument, which was the second section of the pamphlet, and that is really the part that focuses on independence. Independence at this point was a topic that people didn't discuss openly. They didn't talk about it in public. If discussed at all, it was discussed privately, among friends, because basically it amounted to treason. Paine's dramatic 
introduction opened the way for him to introduce this really controversial topic. If the English Constitution lacked legitimacy, well, what next? And his answer obviously is, well, independence, the obvious solution. Which then brings us to the third section of the pamphlet, and that is the future. Paine concludes the pamphlet by discussing just what Americans could institute to replace the English Constitution, like what kind of government they might be able to construct to replace what they were stripping away. They were stripping away the tyranny of British rule, word by word. Thomas Paine was the voice of the rebellion. Arms, as the last resource, decide this contest. The appeal was the choice of the king, and the continent hath accepted the challenge. When we return, more from Thomas Paine, Common Sense, and the American Revolution. This is Our American Stories. And we return to the story of the American Revolution and Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Thomas Paine's Common Sense was published in January of 1776 and a bestseller by April. It had turned colonial nostalgia for Britain into a demand for independence. But Common Sense wasn't only a radical condemnation of the status quo, but the very definition of the American spirit. Here again, Thomas Paine. The sun never shined on a cause of greater worth. Tis not the affair of a city, a county, a province, or a kingdom, but of a continent, of at least one-eighth part of the habitable globe. Tis not the concern of a day, a year, or an age. Posterity are virtually involved in the contest, and will be more or less affected, even to the end of time, by the proceedings now. Now is the seed time of continental union, faith, and honor. The least fractured now will be like a name engraved with the point of a pin on the tender rind of a young oak. The wound will enlarge with the tree, and posterity read it in full-grown characters. While Paine was able to paint vivid pictures with his words, he was also very direct on how the country should move forward. Our plan is commerce, and that, well attended to, will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. Her trade will always be a protection, and her barrenness of gold and silver secure her from invaders. Thomas Paine made a strong argument against men of passive tempers who wanted reconciliation with Britain. Men of passive tempers look somewhat lightly over the offenses of Britain, 
and still hoping for the best, are apt to call out, Come, come, we shall be friends again for all this. But examine the passions and feelings of mankind, bring the doctrine of reconciliation to the touchstone of nature, and then tell me whether you can hereafter love, honor, and faithfully serve the power that hath carried fire and sword into your land. If you cannot do all these, then are you only deceiving yourselves, and by your delay bringing ruin upon posterity. Your future connection with Britain, whom you can neither love nor honor, will be forced and unnatural, and being formed only on the plan of present convenience, will in a little time fall into a relapse more wretched than the first. But if you say you can still pass the violations over, then I ask, hath your house been burnt? Hath your property been destroyed before your face? Are your wife and children destitute of a bed to lie on or bread to live on? Have you lost a parent or a child by their hands, and yourself the ruined and wretched survivor? If you have not, then are you not a judge of those who have. But if you have, and still can shake hands with the murderers, then are you unworthy of the name of husband, father, friend, or lover. And whatever may be your rank or title in life, you have the heart of a coward and the spirit of a sycophant. Here again for a recap on the influence that this work by Thomas Paine had on colonial Americans is Yale professor Joanne Friedman. The power of the pamphlet wasn't just in its argument or in specific points of argument, but rather it was in the way that it reversed prevailing assumptions. Paine forced readers to consider a whole new way of looking at the impending crisis and actually at the entire imperial system. He laid bare assumptions that had led colonists to resist independence, and then by exposing these biases and holding them up to scorn, he forced people to think beyond what they had thought before. Thomas Paine was challenging the way things had always been regarding the survival of liberty. Professor Friedman describes the mindset of those who remained in support of the old way of doing things in contrast to what Paine was writing in Common Sense. So basically the old paradigm had been Liberty can survive among brutal and self-interested men only through a balance of institutionalized forces so no one can monopolize the power of the state and rule without opposition. So monarchy, nobility, and the people have an equal right to share in the struggle for power. Complexity in government in this sense is a good thing. Simplicity allows for monopolization. Well, Paine argues complexity is not a virtue in government. It simply makes it impossible to tell who is at fault. Paine charged that the complexity of the British government was designed to serve the monarchy and the nobility, that the king did nothing but wage war and hand out gifts to his followers, and that this entire idea of British constitutional institutional balance was a fraud. O oh, ye that love mankind, ye that dare oppose not only the tyranny but the tyrant, stand forth. Every spot of the old world is overrun with oppression. Freedom hath been hunted round the globe. Asia and Africa have long expelled her. Europe regards her like a stranger, and England hath given her warning to depart. Oh, receive the fugitive, and prepare in time an asylum for mankind. 
Youth is the seed-time of good habits, as well in nations as in individuals. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to form the continent into one government half a century hence. The vast variety of interests, occasioned by an increase of trade and population, would create confusion. Colony would be against colony. Each being able might scorn each other's assistance, and while the proud and foolish gloried in their little distinctions, the wise would lament that the Union had not been formed before. Wherefore, the present time is the true time for establishing it. The intimacy which is contracted in infancy, and the friendship which is formed in misfortune, are, of all others, the most lasting and unalterable. Our present union is marked with both these characters. We are young, and we have been distressed. But our concord hath withstood our troubles, and fixes a memorable area for posterity to glory in. The present time, likewise, is that peculiar time which never happens to a nation but once, that is, the time of forming itself into a government. Most nations have let slip the opportunity, and by that means have been compelled to receive laws from their conquerors, instead of making laws for themselves. First they had a king, and then a form of government, whereas the articles or charter of government should be formed first, and men delegated to execute them afterward. But from the errors of other nations let us learn wisdom, and lay hold of the present opportunity to begin government at the right end. In Part 4 of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, he specifically calls for a Declaration of Independence, a declaration that would come to fruition just months after this pamphlet was first published. However strange it may appear to some, or however unwilling they may be to think so, matters not. But many strong and striking reasons may be given to show that nothing can settle our affairs so expeditiously as an open and determined declaration for independence. Some of which are, first, it is the custom of nations, when any two are at war, for some other powers not engaged in the quarrel, to step in as mediators, and bring about the preliminaries of a peace. But while America calls herself the subject of Great Britain, no power, however well disposed she may be, can offer her mediation. Wherefore, in our present state, we may quarrel on forever. Secondly, it is unreasonable to suppose that France or Spain will give us any kind of assistance if we mean only to make use of that assistance for the purpose of repairing the breach and strengthening the connection between Britain and America, because those powers would be sufferers by the consequences. Thirdly, while we profess ourselves the subjects of Britain, we must, in the eye of foreign nations, be considered as rebels. The present is somewhat dangerous to their peace for men to be in arms under the name of subjects. We, on the spot, can solve the paradox, but to unite resistance and subjection requires an idea much too refined for common understanding. Fourthly, were a manifesto to be published and dispatched to foreign courts, setting forth the miseries we have endured and the peaceable methods we have ineffectually used for redress, 
declaring at the same time that not being able any longer to live happily or safely under the cruel disposition of the British court, we had been driven to the necessity of breaking off all connections with her, at the same time assuring all such courts of our peaceable disposition towards them, and of our desire of entering into trade with them, such a memorial would produce more good effects to this continent than if a ship were freighted with petitions to Britain. Under our present denomination of British subjects we can neither be received nor heard abroad. The custom of all courts is against us, and will be so, until, by an independence, we take rank with other nations. These proceedings may at first appear strange and difficult, but like all other steps which we have already passed over, will in a little time become familiar and agreeable, and until an independence is declared, the continent will feel itself like a man who continues putting off some unpleasant business from day to day, yet knows it must be done, hates to set about it, wishes it over, and is continually haunted with the thoughts of its necessity. Thomas Paine became the voice of American independence when he published Common Sense. He turned men and women who were sympathetic to the status quo into rebellious, freedom-fighting Americans so that future generations could enjoy this glorious bounty that we call America. And this is Our American Stories.